Well, this morning we have a baby dedication, obviously, and sleeping, so not going to be too loud. Um, um, beautiful timing on this. Even before I studied um, for this morning, I didn't know the next chapter really hadn't gone over it really too much, and they had asked me if we could do the baby dedication. I said, yeah, sure. It goes so well with today's teaching. Not that I'm using your child as a prop, <laughs> but how amazing as I see the family over here, two families, um, the, the Wilsons and the Wilmeses all here, and what a wonderful foundation brick added to your families. And uh, it goes right along with the teaching, the difference between a child being dedicated to Jesus versus a child being dedicated to the world and the foundation that that builds. And so, perfect. And thank you. And what an honor to be able to lift up this little boy to you. Um, Aiden, I got it. I messed my own granddaughter's name up when I did the dedication. And so, I, I wrote it down. I got it on my phone. I'm looking at it. I was like, it's just right. I checked with him in the bathroom. Is that there? He goes, yeah, you got it. I said, okay. So I'm not supposed to share all that, but I, you know, yeah. Aiden. So can we pray for him and lift up your family? And we'll let you keep him. Is that okay? Lord, I lift up this little boy to you. Thank you so much for him and this family. Um, I pray that as mom and dad here have desired to dedicate him to you, um, to raise him, to love you, to know you, to know your word, um, and to be examples of you in his life. I pray that you give them the wisdom they need to raise their children in accordance with your word, but with full of grace and mercy also. That this child would always be able to remember the grace and mercy mom and dad did as an example of their father's grace and mercy for them. I pray that you'd watch out for this little boy. Take care of him. Help him to grow up strong, keep him healthy, but also spiritually, Father, I pray that you'd help him develop and to know and to have a personal relationship with you when it's time, Lord. I thank you so much for these two families. What a beautiful um, legacy and uh, what's been started and is continually brick upon brick is being added to these families. And what a beautiful thing it is as a testimony of when you step into one person's life and how things begin to grow. Um, such a great foundation. So we thank you for this little boy and we lift him up to you and we leave him in your hands and in your care. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Yeah, you bet. All right. This morning we're going to be in 1 Kings 16 and 17, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. A couple announcements while you're turning there. Prayer today at 7 p.m. Come on back for that if you have time and have the... It's, it's good to worship the Lord together and to study together, but to seek Him together is also very important. It's part of our walk. So if you can come to prayer tonight, we just you don't have to pray. You can pray quietly. Um, you can keep your mouth shut and just agree, or you can join in and, and voice any prayers that God brings to your mind. Um, but that's what we're going to do, and that's going to be here at 7. Women's luncheon is April 4th. That's coming up here, and the sign-up sheets are out there on the table on your way out, as well as a flyer you can take with you to keep... Uh, that in the forefront of your mind, stick it on your fridge or whatever that you do with those things. And then the garage sale, which is coming up May 1st and 2nd. That's a Friday and a Saturday. Um, and what we do is uh, we collect uh, from you guys whatever you guys feel like you don't need in your house anymore or that you want to get rid of. And um, then we set it up here and, and, and sell it to whoever comes. And all, every dime of it goes to Mission of Joy Orphanage. Um, none of it stays here. It all goes to them. And so 
If you have things that you need to drop off early, we do have a, the garage that someone donated to us. There's plenty of room. It's got a concrete floor. It's wonderful. We can take a lot of stuff and, and hold it there. Um, but some of the smaller things, if you could keep it and wait till maybe a few days before, and then we can, we don't have to move it twice. Then we can just park it here. And then when it's time, we can set it up. Um, and, uh, and that's what we'll do. So um, keep that in mind as you start thinking about things that maybe you don't need anymore and understand that whatever it sells for is going to go to um, some kids. So it's going to be a good thing. That'll be May 1st and 2nd. And that's, that's it for announcements. Now, chapter 16, we'll go through pretty quickly this morning. 17, we'll spend some time on. But 16, we pick up with Bashar being the king of Israel, okay? We have a civil war that's happened between the nation of Israel uh, and, and the two southern tribes, Judah. So you'll hear them termed that way, Israel, which isn't all 12. It's just the top 10, uh, the northern 10. And then you've got the bottom two called Judah. And so they're in civil war, and we know that. And I don't want to rehash that every time we open up. It's going to be like that for a long time. Um, and so what they do is they're toggling and going through the kings with us. Here's who ruled here, who's ruled there, and so on. And so uh, the nation of Judah, the two, two southern tribes, has a king named Asa, and he's going to be king for a really long time. And so we're going to, the Bible is going to focus on the northern 10 tribes and tell us all the kings they had during this one reign of Asa, and they'll use him as a reference point in his second years, 32nd years, whatever year of King Asa, this guy was in charge, and they go through him like water up there. Um, and so that's what we're going to go through. And so I am going to skip a little bit as we go through this, um, just so you know. Um, I don't, you don't need to be tortured with my mispronunciation of all the names. And so um, let's hit it. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha, saying, Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people, uh, Israel, and you have walked in my way in the way of Jeroboam, and have made my people Israel sin to provoke me to anger with their sins. Surely, I will take away um, the posterity of Basha and the posterity of his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Now we know what happened there. If you've been here, Jeroboam uh, led the people away from the Lord, uh, began to institute idolatry, um, and and we'll talk about that in a little bit here. Uh, and this guy continues on and, and goes further. And you'll notice that's a theme. Every king after these guys goes a little bit further and a little bit further. It's like they're outdoing one another when it comes to sin. And so this guy does, and God says, I'm going to hold you accountable to that. Um, our judicial system is designed that way. Now, regardless of how you feel about the fairness of it or, or whatever, there's like two camps. Every, there's half of you think everybody ought to be just shot, you know, kind of thing. And then the other half thinks there ought to be a lot more grace and mercy. And, and, and somewhere in the middle, we try to find out, hey, if you do this, you get this. And, it, and we try to make it fair. And there's disagreements. But for the most part, we try to do that. And it's a pretty good system. It's better than anything else on the earth right now. Um, and so there is two reasons for that. One is, we hope, for the same people that are out there that just have bad tempers and have decided maybe they're going to do this thing, they would think twice and say, I don't want to live the rest of my beautiful life in a cage. So therefore, I'm not going to follow through with what I thought I would do, a deterrent. Um, and so we see that. We see guys in cages. And we see, okay, great. I don't want to live there, so I'm going to be a good boy. And so that's the idea. Um, and then there's others that just, they're not there. And they're going to do whatever they want to do. And those folks get put in jail or have to go through the justice system because we just need to keep them out of society because they're going to continue to hurt other people. So there's a deterrent, and then there's just flat-out punitive. You're just not going to be able to do what you want to do. 
God steps in periodically throughout human history and judges. Um, And what we realize with Noah and the flood, that it doesn't matter how much you step in, there is always going to be sin. I mean, we got down to eight people. You'd think we'd we'd have rooted out the problem, right? But I mean, it wasn't more than a few months later after they landed that we had sin building up again because we have sin natures. We're born with them. That's our default. Our default is sin. We fall into that. Christ comes into our life, gives us a new heart, Instead of the stony heart that we have, a fleshy heart begins to change us from the inside out. And that is the only way the symptoms go away, is if we have a new start with Christ being born again. And that spirit is revived within us, and our relationship with God begins to flourish and uh, develop. So, he steps in periodically. Hey, Bashai, you're doing even better than Jeroboam, and you need to pay for it. And so the same fate that befell him is going to befall you. You and all your family are going to die like dogs, is the idea. Both a deterrent, but also punitive. They need to know that. God doesn't let it continue. He has a time frame that we don't understand a lot of times. He lets things go longer than we think he should sometimes. Sometimes he acts too quickly when it comes to us, usually. He steps in and corrects us. But for the most part, God just has a plan. And that's hard for us to understand. But in these cases, he steps in and he's doing what he does as far as justice goes. Now, Jehu warns him. He's a prophet. He's faithful to tell him that. The guy doesn't change. And so therefore, we're going to see it move on in verse 8, that uh, while Asa was in his 26th year of the reign of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, became king over Israel and reigned two years. That's not very long. Uh, in Terza. Now, his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariot, so he's one of his top commanders, conspired against him as he was in Tirza, or Tirza, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Tirza. And Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. That's our reference point, 26 years, 27 years of Asa. This happens. A coup takes place. Seems to be pretty common. I find it interesting, though, that he did it while he was drinking himself drunk. And this isn't my moment to step up, but Proverbs 31.4 does say, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink. It protects them. When you stay away from that stuff, you have a clear mind, a clear head. You're able to judge rightly. You're able to be aware of your surroundings, situational awareness. This guy found himself in a weak place um, and ends up two years into his reign being assassinated by his top commander. That may have happened anyway. But the Bible does put it in there that he was under the influence at the time. And that's what it literally means. You are under the influence of something else other than yourself. You're not in power anymore. You're not, you've given that up. You've turned it over to the liquid um, and anything else um, that you might do in that place. And so that's what's happened to him. Verse 11, then it came to pass when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on the throne, that he killed all the household of Bashaw, fulfilling what we just read that Jehu the prophet told him, hey, look out, your whole family's going to die. This Zimri guy steps in and does it. And he steps in and kills him. Thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Bashah, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Bashah by Jehu the prophet. Now some of us are like, well, how do you use an unrighteous guy to do judgment? God just can. He can use any tool he wants to in his bag. It shows his authority for one thing. I mean, a great example is Job. When you see the first two chapters of Job, you see all the sons of God presenting themselves before the Lord, and Satan shows up. Okay, 
not a good idea to invite him to the party, you know, but that's not how God sees it. And so we asked him, hey, what you been up to? Paraphrasing. Um, well, I've been going to and fro across the world. Now we know from another scripture, he says, going to and fro, seeking whom he can devour. Satan doesn't bring that up in front of God. And he says, I'm just going to and fro. He goes, have you ever considered my servant Job? See, God's got to work in Job's life. God's got to work in Job's three friends' lives. God has to make his witness known on earth. So have you considered Job? So God uses Satan in Job's life to bring about all sorts of things. You can read the book on your own. It doesn't get good to the last two or two chapters, really. Um, most of it's a bunch of ridiculous advice from his three friends that needed to be rebuked. But the last two chapters, we see God telling Noah, or, or not, see how I do that, uh, Job, stand up like a man, and we're going to talk. This is in, after all the bad things have ever happened to him from Satan. And then he corrects the other three guys too as well and shows himself to be true, shows himself to be God. God can use those things in their lives so he can use it in our lives. And that's a hard pill for me to swallow sometimes. I don't mind all day long if a holy, righteous person comes up to me. Well, I do. I don't like it any, ever. But I can take it a little better when a holy, righteous person comes up to me who's walking the walk, tells me what I need to be doing. That I can receive. But when I get some heathen Telling me that Pastor JD is wrong. Well, I've got opinions on that. And I need to be open to whatever God wants to do and to receive it. Because if the world can see it, that's pretty bad. Uh, you guys, when you see it, I kind of expect that. You know, it's a microscope in here, you know, kind of thing. And I'm just that thing in the Petri dish swimming around. I get that. But when the world can see my sin and spot it and say, that's just not right. You're, I mean, I hate God and don't believe in him at all. But you're not supposed to act like that. That's a red flag and should be, that's what's happening here. God is stepping in and he's taking unusual tools to bring about his end results. Because what does he have to work with, honestly? I mean, we are building up to chapter 17 where Elijah steps in, the prophet. I'm excited about that. We like Elijah. He's, he starts off great anyway. He gets a little squirrely at the end, but that's okay. We all do as men of God, women of God. But he starts off great. So we're moving into him. God is setting the stage for us to see. Do you see how bad it gets when men remove God from their lives and begin to rule over their own lives, begin to uh, be their own leaders, basically? It just goes south. It gets worse and worse. And that's what's happening here. So Jehu, the prophet, was right. Zimri is doing what he's supposed to do. Now in the 20, verse 15, the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, down south. Here's what's going on up north. Zimri had reigned in Terza seven days. You think the first guy had it bad. I got two years. This guy gets a week to be ruler. And the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, which is where they should be, camped against their enemy. Now the people who were encamped heard it. Zimri has conspired and also has killed the king. So all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So now we've got another coup starting here. Then Omri and all Israel went with him, went, went, uh, with him up, or went up with him. Come on, read it. Then Omri and all Israel with him went up from Gibbethon, and they besieged Terza, 
And it happened when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, in walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he had committed to make Israel sin. And he says, aren't the rest of the acts written in the Chronicles? And they are. So this guy commits a suicide type thing, um, obviously from conviction, I believe. Um, I don't know if he repented or not, but he felt bad, and this is it. So he got seven whole days to be ruler. Now we have a country that's leaderless, so that void gives opportunity. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ganath, to make him king, and half followed Omri, the guy who just besieged old Zimri. A lot of ease in this, you know, Tibni, Omri, Zimri. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, um, the son of Ganath. So Tibni died and Omri reigned. So, you know, okay, he won. Um, and and I, I know this, sitting in your shoes or being in your seat, uh, how's this going to help me on Monday? I, I know. You're like, okay, Omri, Zimri, and do I need to take notes on this? Probably not. Okay, I understand that. This is what the world looks like governing themselves, okay? We live in a world like that, where most people are governing themselves. Most people. And for your place as a believer, if you're a believer this morning, if you're not, please become a believer. Trust Jesus for your salvation. We'll talk about that here. But if you are a believer, you understand that you are no longer governing your own lives. God is governing your life for you. You pray, you seek the Lord, you follow his word, you do what he wants you to do, so on. And it's different. And when those two worlds collide, boy, you know it. So the Bible is setting us up for Elijah coming on the scene here, telling us how awful it is, how these men are just fighting for power. Nobody cares about anybody but themselves and how that looks. Elijah is going to come on the scene, and that's where we step in. We come on the scene as believers oftentimes, and we are either going to be received one of two ways. Either we are going to be the beautiful fragrance of Christ to people and life. Oh, thank goodness, a believer. Oh, it just brings peace being in your presence because I know you love Jesus like I love Jesus or I want to love Jesus. You just, oh, it's just, a, or you're the stench of death to them and they bristle and really bristle, you know, which is what's going to happen with Elijah. Elijah is going to come on the scene and he is going to be who he is. He is going to represent God regardless of who the audience is. And some are going to say, wow, what a blessing. And others are going to say, you're a dead man. Okay. And so that's what the Bible's setting us up for. We live in that world. We live in a world where, although God was at one time in charge, that he was the authority, that we did trust in him, that we did believe in him, and we did submit to his authority, but we've removed him, and now we are slowly but surely slipping into sin and idolatry and working their way over as the nation of Israel is into a place where this beautiful image of God, God has described himself, he has showed himself, it's not about the idolatry. It's about what they did to worship these idols. And that's what's bothersome to the Lord. He says, I don't want you to make any images of me, and I don't want you to make any graven images either. I mean, I don't want, I don't want you to try to figure out what I look like, nor do I want you to make other things to worship. So he said, you can make my chair. You can make everything that represents heaven here on earth. That's what the tabernacle and all that was to look like. And I'll come sit on the chair. And that's when the Shekinah glory 
rested and filled the place with smoke. It was amazing, you know, pillar, fire, pillar, smoke, the whole thing. There he was, you know. Now, you can't make an image of that. Now, what people didn't like back then was all things holy, because that's who God is. He's all things holy. But I like this sin in my life. And so although I like most of all things holy, I really feel bad about that sin. So I'm going to make a little idol over here that looks a lot like all things holy, God, but with a little twist on it that gives room for my vice, gives room for my thing. And that's the first step. I'm going the wrong way. First step into idolatry. You've not loved the true and living God. You've made an image of him that's close, but it never stays there. It never, ever stays one step off center. The next step is, well, that's great, but there's this other thing that I like, and so the image gets a little more cloudy, a little more disfigured, and so finally you're worshiping this monstrosity that has nothing to do and looks nothing like the true and living God, and you are worshiping it the way you love to worship, with all the sin that just makes you feel so alive inside, so amazing inside, and that's how I worship my God. And you don't know how you got here necessarily. Most people can't trace their steps, but that's where it ends up, right here. So God seeing the nation of Israel going into this idolatry, watching them slip, as we've noticed, king after king doing worse and worse and worse in the eyes of the Lord. They're moving further and further away. We're setting ourselves up for when God steps in as Elijah steps in and says, look, we got to stop this. This needs to end. So this guy... Omri, he gets to reign for 12 years, the Bible says. And it says here in verse 25, very important, Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. So he is truly practicing sin. Remember Shaquille O'Neal could never, could never land a free throw. Poor guy, you know, greatest center ever. I mean, obviously, thank you. And just, but just take it and put it in the net. And who's going to stop him? They were bouncing off of him like ping pong balls, you know, funny to watch. But when it came to the free throw line, you know, he was terrible. So he spent, this is a terrible example, but he spent forever in the gym. He knew his weakness. He knew what he needed to get better at. And we call that, well, he practiced. That's great when it comes to sports, but not when it comes to sin. See, these folks were practicing their sin, getting better at it. Oh, I'm making it every time now. Nobody's catching me doing this. Or I've got everybody convinced this is the way to do it. Practicing sin. That's what it looks like. When the Bible talks about you shouldn't practice sin, that's what it's talking about. He's not talking about if you've ever practiced sin once. No, we do. We, we go into it. We fall into it. We walk into it. We make mistakes, lapses of judgment. We hate it. We wish we'd never gone there. And we step right back. That's not practicing sin. That's committing, for sure, a sin. But it's not practicing. Practicing is what they're doing. I can top that. I can top that to the point where we get to this new guy, Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel are going to come on the scene here in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. Now watch the, this is a huge jump. And Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. He had 22 years to practice sin. You can get pretty good at it after 22 years of leading a nation into sin. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Congratulations, here's your certificate. And it came to pass, and here's the kicker, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. See, 
there must have been somewhere along the line, every one of these kings before Ahab had some conflict when it came to sin. Some sort of conviction, some sort of laying bed, maybe, I don't know if I should have built that last altar. It just doesn't seem right. What do you think, honey? I don't know. The people wanted it. Okay. Well, and so at least the thought was there that they shouldn't have done that. At least the idea was there. This guy's to the place where he's like, I don't even give it a second thought. I have zero conviction about that. He, 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 it, was a, it was a tiny thing, a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. Jeroboam, that guy's a goody-goody. Really, you know? He didn't, know how to, he didn't know how to party. He didn't know how to live. I know how to live. Follow me. I mean, this guy went, wait, zero conviction. And he marries a, a gal that's the same way. Okay, Jezebel. So, he got to that place where it became trivial, no conflict whatsoever. Guys, that is the end result. The Bible talks about it. Do not let your heart become calloused. There's a danger to showing up Bible study after Bible study, altar call after altar call without responding to Jesus' call in your life. Come and be saved. Your sin is big, and I died all of it. You reject it, you reject it, you reject it. You're just putting layers and layers of calluses over your heart to the point where you're completely inoculated. The gospel, yeah, I know the gospel. I can give it better than you can. I could probably street witness as an unbeliever better than you could as a newbie. You can get to that place. They're to that place. Ahab practices evil, has no conviction, marries a gal that's a great partner in crime. Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. So now they've actually brought in a known Baal. This is, these are the people they evicted out because they worshipped Baal out of the promised land and inherited it. Now they're, they're doing it now. The power of sin, that draw. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria, how far they had fallen from Solomon building the temple of God. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him excelled at it. In his days, and this is where the baby dedication comes in, right here. In his days, or in, in his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. Are you kidding me? It's the first city that they knocked down. Actually, they didn't. The Lord did. The first city the nation of Israel comes to, here's Jericho. Here's what I want you to do. The march, the blowing of the horns, the whole thing, all prescribed by God. And God knocked down the walls just based off of his word and their obedience to just march around. Not a stone was thrown, but it fell. And they're rebuilding it now, which is a prophecy given by Joshua Chapter 6, verse 26, 500 years later, that prophecy comes to pass that whoever builds this will be cursed. And I think this Ahab guy knows it. I'm just throwing that out there. What are we not supposed to do? What did God say we're not supposed to do? Build Jericho? Go build Jericho. That's the kind of guy he is. That's where he stands. You ever know people like that? They just love it. They know you're a Christian. Oh, what? You don't want me to say that? And then they say it, you know? You're like, Am I supposed to punch people for Jesus or am I not supposed to? No, probably not supposed to do that. And you get that moment like, okay, we're going there. This is going to be an interesting day, you know, kind of thing. That's this guy. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub. 
He set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of, the, son of Nun. You understand what that means? These are called foundational sacrifices, and they are not figurative. They're literal. And they take their babies in an offering to Baal that this might be a success. They put them in jars and put them in the foundation, embedded in the foundation of buildings, of their homes, of municipal buildings, whatever it may be. And this is what they did. Now, do you understand why God says, I'm not so much a fan of Baal worship? Because you're doing things that I never wanted to happen. When we prayed this morning for this beautiful little boy, whole different thing when Christ comes into a life. I don't want death. I want life. I want him to succeed. I want him to do well. I want him to flourish. Our God is for us, not against us. Baal and every other God out there is simply Satan disguised, and he wants death and destruction and wants to destroy everything. I'm a roaring lion going back and forth, to and fro, seeking whom I can devour, not help, not emancipate so that they can live in sin. No, I want him to destroy him. I want to kill him. And they thought this was the best way. Embed the babies, the children, alive sometimes into the foundations of these buildings so that they might be a success. That's where the nation is. You ever see these articles today about what happens to some kids in our world? Makes you sick to your stomach. And all of us just start doing this in our minds, right? It's like, here's my solution for that problem. I know what I'd do to that person. And all those thoughts of justice come to our mind. And that, I understand that. I understand. There's nothing wrong with having righteous indignation. We should be very upset about the things that happen to the innocents. And we have ideas of what should take place. But those are symptoms. We're simply going back to a time when this is normal for the nation of Israel. This is what we do. Oh, you're dedicating your house today? Wonderful. Which child? It was completely normal. We're giving up Susie. She's a girl anyway. We don't have any boys. Oh, well, it's a start. Maybe the next... And oh, it just... It, we should be thinking this right now. We should be nauseated going, what in the world? Guys, Satan has never changed his tactics. We are still doing it. We are still killing our children. In the name of convenience, in the name of a better life, in the name of provision, in the name of we're going to be able to have a healthier child next time, we're going to be able to, we're still doing it. We're just not using them for building material anymore. We're just throwing them in the trash. It's the exact same thing. Nothing's changed. Our society has gotten rid of God for the most part, and we have taken our step, and we are taking our step, and we are moving further and further into where this is celebrated. Elijah steps in. We've got to have some good news in the next 10 minutes, right? And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. That's phase one. Prophet comes on the scene. I've got a lot of things I need to say about God, but you're not going to receive them until you see some miracles happen here first. So here's the first miracle. We're going to get real thirsty real quick here. And we're going to let that marinate for a while, marinate for a while, so that everybody gets real thirsty. And now maybe when I have something to say and you realize that I have the power to shut up the rain, you'll start hearing what I have to say. But they're not there yet. They're so hard-hearted that if you went up and says, you know what, God, you ever try to witness that way? 
I, I, I know that you're in the middle of your sin, but Jesus loves you. Ah, shut up. Well, that went well, you know. I think I, I, think I broke through. I think, well, there's a seed planted in their hearts. No, it didn't. Bounced right off. A couple birds ate it, and it went on. Sometimes we got to get really thirsty really quick. I know that's where I was when I got saved. I had to get to that place where I could actually receive what God had to say. And that's what's happening to the nation of Israel. We're going to start with a drought, he says. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, now get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook. What's he hiding from? Well, as soon as they see the water stop, they're going to say, oh, start ringing Elijah out. Let's make him rain, you know. Tell it to start raining. Tell it to start raining. Tell him to start raining. You know, you're going to need to hide now. All right. Because they're not going to be real excited about repentance yet, but they will kill you. So I want you to go to this brick, or the brook, brick. The brook, Cherith or Kareth, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. We didn't have those Uber meals yet. So this is how he did. That's pretty progressive. No app needed or anything. You just, there it is. There comes some meat and bread. Some of you are like, I don't think I'd eat that. You would. You'd eat it. You'd get hungry enough. You'd eat raven puke or whatever. So he went and did a court. Now I'm not saying it's puke. They probably went and got a carcass. That's what they do. And they bring over and drop the meat. And he just have a little barbecue there by the brook. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. I love that. Elijah's doing great. For he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, or Kareth, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. He got two meals. And he drank from the brook. It happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And so this is a temporary thing, but it's still God's provision for him. See, God is trying to move the nation of Israel through physical circumstances into a spiritual awakening. He's also guiding his prophet the same way. Some physical th- circumstances is moving him physically through the land. He's doing this. That's okay. And I need to be okay with that as a Christian. And on Monday, you need to be okay with that. Physical th- circumstances may dictate that you need to move or change direction or do something different. It isn't necessarily an attack against you. It's just God saying no. Oh, I thought you said you were going to provide for me here and take care of me. I did, but it's over. Dried up. Move on. It's okay for us. We have to be this detached from the world. I know we're not all Elijah's. I understand that. But this is the level of faith, at least, that I want to get to or be there. I want to live there. I want to be in that place where God says, yeah, that's dried up. It's time to move on. All right. I don't want to have that kind of remorse or let this child live before you, God. No, if this isn't it, this isn't it. I want to move on. And so he moves him on. Now, here's what we're going to do, he says. The word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Not a rich guy with a bunch in store or anything. I I found this widow and she's going to provide for you. Really? You know? I love this. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water and a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, we're in a drought. You understand? That was a big request. You know, not like, can I have a sip of water? No, can I have some water? Yeah, we got plenty of that. You know, but she's going to go do it. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. 
Now that stops her dead in her tracks. So she said, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Ask me how my day is going, she says. Did you really want to know kind of thing? I, and for some reason, she, can you see her turning around? Yeah, I'll get you some water. Humble, broken, hopeless. Can I get some food? Okay. You know, <laughs> let's talk about this food thing. Look at his response as he sees her eyes. This is what he sees in her eyes when she turns around. This is Elijah said to her, do not fear. It breaks my heart when I read those things. Every time. This is a man of God that knows what to say. He doesn't say, oh man, I'm so sorry. I mean, I didn't realize you were like that. He doesn't apologize for anything. He goes, no, no, no. Don't be afraid. This is all part of it. I mean, he doesn't say all that. He doesn't need to. He just looks at her and he says, don't be afraid. And let me tell you why you don't need to be afraid. I don't have some platitude or a plaque that you could stick up in your house. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. He gives her something to hold on to. Do not fear. Go and do as I have, or you have said, but make me a small cake from it first. Bring it to me and afterward make some for yourself and, and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, now that he's going to give her the prophecy, the sure word of prophecy before the miracle. Whereas with, we needed the miracle first for the unbelievers, right? They need to have no rain for a while before they're going to receive the word of the Lord. Here we see an exact opposite thing. He says, no, let me tell you what's going to happen first. Something you can hold on to while you're making me that little tiny cake. Now, I don't know how big it was, but just make me a little. I don't want all of it. Just make me a little. The, flour, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away. Good for her. You know how hard that must have been? I'm completely hopeless. What was that walk like? And this is where I speculate, and you can throw it all out because it's not in God's word. So I'm giving you that right there. But you're, I know what I would be praying if I'm out there picking up sticks for my last meal and my son. Please, God, help us. Please don't let this be the last meal. I mean, I don't know what else. If this is your will, whatever, that's fine. I'm, I'm completely submitted to you. You took my husband for whatever reason. We don't know what happened. And my son, and I, I don't know. And all of a sudden, some old guy says, can I have some food? Her answer to her prayer is right in front of her. It's right there. Earlier, God said, I have commanded this widow to provide for you. Maybe the first request was all that she heard from the Lord. Maybe, maybe God says, I want you to provide for him. And he says, I want some water. She goes, I can do that. But the food? Hmm. Make me a small cake. For, I promise it's not going to run out. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Came to pass. I mean, we all knew it was going to go that way, right? I mean, we knew that. She didn't. She didn't. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe you unless I believe in you, unless I can put my hands and my fingers into the prints of your hand until I feel your wounds. I'm not going to believe you. He says, well, go ahead. Feel, do it. Stick them in there. I don't need to do that. You're like the son of God. I know now. I can see you. You know, Thomas really never really did that. But then he looks at Thomas. He says, you know, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who believe without seeing, which is us. It's us. 
We have the opportunity to hear the sure word of prophecy every Sunday and every Wednesday. Throwing out my commentary, you do, we do hear the word of God. You know, and you're getting that. And I can either receive that for me every single time and apply it and trust in it and live by it. I don't need a miracle to prove what I heard was right. I want to be like this lady. I want to be like the people Jesus was talking about who believe his word first and watch it come to pass. And say, I knew it was going to the whole time because God said so. You don't have to show me anything. I want to be in that place like Elijah who moves to the brook, who moves to this widow's house, who has the boldness to ask this poor woman for her last piece of bread. I don't know. He does it. Now her faith is to that place. God's not done with her yet. Look at the next story and then we close. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house, he became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance, to kill my son? There's a story there, isn't there? God doesn't share it though, so we can't elaborate on it, but she knows something's up. You're bringing my sin to remembrance? What sin? I don't know. And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to me or back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child returned back to him and he revived. So this guy wasn't just sick. He was dead, dead, really dead. And so we see Elijah do this. Then Elijah took the child and brought him down to the, uh, from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now by, by this, <clears throat> I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. What happened? She needed to go a step further in her faith. I don't know what happened with the oil and with the flour and why that was so exciting, but, but my guess is it turned into, look, don't, don't break the magic pot. Don't ruin the magic oil thing. And credit was no longer going where it was supposed to go. It was something to do with the pot. It was something to do with this endless thing. I kept pouring. Look, watch. It's like a party trick she could do to her friends. Look, it just keeps pouring. It just keeps pouring. It never stops. You can take it home. You know, who knows? But she had stopped giving credit to the one who said it would happen and focused on the miracle itself. And that's a dangerous place for all of us as believers looking for the next miracle, holding on to it, talking about the next miracle, and not just wondering at the sure word of prophecy that we've been given, that we can handle daily. Do you know how much more important this book is compared to all the miraculous things that ever took place in the scriptures? Feeding the 5,000 doesn't compare to holding this in our hands and putting our fingers to it and reading it anytime we want and believing it and trusting it and walking in it. She had to be taken to that next step. You notice a little character change in Elijah too, though? Before it was just like, yeah, I'll go to the brook. Okay, yeah, I'll go ask her for bread. But it was no longer him and his faith, and it was somebody else's. He gets a little concerned, doesn't he? 
Hey, 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 you know, we're dwelling here. We were going great. She's doubting you. What is this? Why is he dead? You know, bring him back to life. But look what he does. So symbolic. This is not your usual laying hands on somebody to be well. Lays the kid out, lays himself on the kid, hand to hand, nose to nose, foot to foot, lays on this kid and prays, God, please return his soul to him. Please return his soul to him. Please return his soul to him. You know what he's doing? He's like, just take, I don't take it. I give it to me. I was thinking about, we were just talking about your little boy and how he was sick and how as parents, you're like, man, give me the sickness all day long, but don't let this kid be sick. Hearing those little kids have that raspy, rattly cough and all, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. Fever, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. I'll take it all day long, but spare them. That's all he's doing right here. This little kid, this little kid, this little kid, nose to nose with him. Talk about empathy. Beautiful picture of Christ, though. As Jesus steps up on the cross and he spreads out his hands, he goes, not them, me. Me, 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 me. I'll take it. I'll take it. Give it to me. And then while he's on the cross, the worst verse in the Bible, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That's the worst verse in the Bible. And you know what I mean by that? Are you kidding me? When we should be the ones on our knees saying, I'm sorry that we put you up there. I'm sorry that you have to die in our place. Thank you so much for all that you're doing here. I know it's a big deal. I'm so sorry. He says to me, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's the one giving forgiveness. He's the one blessing us still. We don't get that kind of love. We don't understand that. It's an amazing love that takes forever to search out, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to getting to know the God who has that kind of love for me. And Elijah showing this woman, give him to me. And stretching himself out and said, please heal him. Three times though, I'm sure there's some symbolism there. I mean, you know, three days and and all and three times praying. But what I get from that is it wasn't the first time he prayed. It took some perseverance in prayer. Sometimes I'm like, well, I tried. I prayed, nothing happened. Maybe he wants to spend a little more time with me. Maybe I need to ask three times. Maybe there's something more to be done here in my heart. All I know is this kid doesn't stop. This Elijah doesn't stop praying until this kid's heart comes back, until his soul comes back to him, which gives us a little insight into the eternal, doesn't it? Soul leaves, soul comes back. Now we don't hear anything out of this kid. Can you imagine being in the presence of God in Abraham's bosom at the time? I'm getting called back here to the drought, you know? It's like Lazarus. You never hear a word out of Lazarus, you know? He's just always sitting at the table going, I don't know why I'm I was there with God, and then you guys brought me back. So glad, you know? Guys, and I, and I, I make a, a laugh out of that because we really have to have a healthy perspective of death. To be in the presence of God is far better to, than to be here. Far better. Now, I'm not saying we need to go search it out and go get there faster than he wants to take us home. But like Paul, we should be looking very much forward to that. And when someone goes on to be with the Lord, <sighs> sorry, I'm going to miss you, but enjoy. And I wouldn't wish you back for anything. I can't wait to be there with you. You know, Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. Thank you for your encouragement this morning, even out of Kings. So, many, so much evil going on with these guys, trying to outdo one another and to be less convicted and to bring in more idolatry. And yet you were faithful to bring them to repentance or wanting to anyway, by sending your representative Elijah down there to share your word with them, that they might turn and come back to you. 
That is the end result or the hope and the desire here is you wanted to step in and stop this progression, this, this slipping back into idolatry. And so, Lord, help us to pay attention to those things. When you stop us in our tracks and call us back, whether we're one step, two steps, or three steps towards sin, help us to come right back to you, to run back to you into your arms. Lord, for those that don't know you this morning and they've heard your word and they felt that tug on their heart by your spirit, I pray that they would respond this morning to give their lives to you, to surrender their lives to you, to thank you for the salvation that you've given them, that your son has died on the cross for the sins and they accept that this morning, that they desire to be born again and to take this heart of stone out of their lives and to replace it with your fleshy, beautiful heart, to change them from the inside out, which is truly the only antidote to all the symptoms we see in this world is for people to surrender their lives to you. Wherever you move, wherever you step into a country, to a city, to a person, you change it for the better always because you bring more freedom, more grace, mercy, forgiveness, love, compassion, long suffering, patience, kindness, just automatically comes with that relationship with you. And we need that so desperately in this world. So I pray this morning, If you're an unbeliever, pray with me now. Jesus, I desire to be born again. I want to understand who you are. I want to know you better. I understand that you died on the cross for my sins, that my sins separated me from you, and that I deserve justice, but you took that justice at the cross that was intended for me. Instead of me, you died. But you rose again. And so as you died and rose, I also will die and rise again with you too. And I look forward to that new life with you. Thank you for paying the penalty for all my sins. Now, not only that, I want, to, I want you to be Lord of my life. Thank you for being my Savior, but I want you to be Lord. I don't want to govern myself anymore like these people are governing. I want you to rule and reign. I want to submit to your word, to your spirit, to your leading. I want my life to be your life. I want you to use it and spend it how you will. My hands, your hands, your feet are my feet. And so I give you my life this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.